word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Hey, thanks for joining us on our final episode of National Poetry Month. Coming up, we'll talk to Phoenix-based podcaster and poet Imogen Arate. Diverse offerings nestle on the still soft earth engorged from the glistening green grasses nightly watering. Plus, Valley poet Anna Flores shares her experience of mixed-status families that went into her work, Bochet Theory. It's such a problem. It seeps into everything. It seeps into the way we talk about work ethic. We talk about who is allowed to dream, who is allowed to be an artist, even. But first, my colleague Christina Estes produced a five-part feature series for KJZZ about the business of books. In this part, Christina takes us to an open mic night at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore. And I just wanted to introduce everybody to the space. If you haven't been here before, this is Palabras Bilingual Bookstore. It's Pocket To Me Open Mic Night at Palabras. Pac is spelled P-O-C and stands for people of color. So please give it up for your excerpt. Chawa Magana wants to provide a platform where people of color feel comfortable sharing their stories. And know that their stories and their experiences have value. The audience is just really receptive and really um, encouraging to the writer. Brianna Johnson shares a poem about growing up in South Phoenix. The street we grew up on was full of laughter from rough neighborhood kids with no common sense. She remembers a church everyone knew could feed your soul. Because Grandma always brought her delicious home cooking to the potluck and shared with those whose tummies rumbled, not just with hunger, but with anger and defeat. She describes the church and other buildings being demolished, replaced by housing developments. Long after new families with nicer windows and better schools finally moved in, our street still lives on. Every month, Magana hosts an open mic night. While this one is filled with poets, she's also had authors, musicians, and comedians. Maybe somebody is questioning, well, why wouldn't they think that their experiences have value? Well, because the, ultra, the overarching narrative in American culture is to become Americanized, and it becomes this one homogenous thing. The idea for palabras, which is Spanish for words, came after Magana visited a traveling Spanish bookstore. She wondered why Phoenix didn't have a bilingual bookstore and decided to open one. In the nation's fifth largest city, she started with five books. There would be days where I would just walk up to the space and I would see boxes of books that were donations, and little by little I started getting more and more books. Between the donations, feedback, and lack of air conditioning at the original location, Magana realized she needed to move. Now she's on McDowell Road, where she's bought most of the 20,000 titles. Four dresses, cuatro vestidos. Including Little Libros, a line of bilingual picture books for children. The language gets lost, second, third generation, but parents want to refamiliarize themselves and their children with the language. Being a first-generation Mexican-American influences what Magana sells beyond books. So my mom was what you would call a curandera or a healer, and she really loved working with plants, and she knew a lot. I have that same type of interest. 
the sage-based room clearing spray, the creosote bundles, the herbal blends. I do all of that. Shelves are being installed to showcase the work of local artists like Jeff Slim, a member of the Diné tribe. His colorful 120-foot mural welcomes customers. When he's not creating art, Slim is the store's other employee. It's very, very the most independent of independent bookstores probably in the Valley. It's just me and this guy running the show. <laughs> Liking your coworker is especially valuable in a business with a tight profit. So you have to contend with pretty horrible margins and hope that your business is gaining momentum and that people are buying a lot of books and they're buying them consistently. That's where open mic nights could pay off, by getting people in the store and cementing community connections. Give me the Danae girl giggling in the alley, all in black, reclaiming her sexuality at every turn. I was born with Nana's lips, but this voice is mine. It's not green, white, and red, not red, white, and blue. It's rain in a silver bucket. We claimed land meant for us to share and denied our own siblings a future by staining the ground with their blood. Mother, I am so sorry. My city streets don't represent me. They're too pristine, too clean, orderly, dull. When I look at my people, I see self-taught architects like the founders that built the Mayan pyramids. We are Mesoamerican excellence, so don't look at us with prejudice. We are human beings just like everyone else. So take this as a lesson. One more time, when y'all look at my people, what's your first impression? More events are being planned, and so is a coffee shop. It's another way Magana hopes Palabras will become synonymous with Mi casa es su casa. My house is your house. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you can find Christina's entire five-part series on the business of books by searching kjzz.org. Coming up after a quick break, Imogen A. Rate is a fellow podcaster and poet. She'll join us to talk about the inspiration for her program and also share some of her work with us. You're listening to Word. Bring the radio home with you and never miss a minute of your favorite programs. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. I'm Robin Young. I'm Jeremy Hobson. It's here and now. Use all the features on your smart speaker to get the latest news updates and the best shows on public radio. It's easy. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxinon. Valley poet and podcaster Imogen A-Rate hosts a program called Poets and Muses. I was curious how she came up with the idea. I've been going around the valley to different open mics and poetry slams and different events. And every time I've encountered poetry that's resonated with me, I've thought, oh, my God, I really want to know the story behind it. And... You know, given the nature of those events, usually in the evenings and everybody's got their jobs during the day, they're pretty much exhausted by the end of it. Uh, you know, it's nice to chat, but sometimes, a lot of the times, you just don't get the experience. So I kind of came up um, with the idea of the show half for selfish reasons because I want to <laughs> know what's the story behind their poems. And the other half is that I thought, man, these are great stories. I want other people to know about it. Now, you brought along some of your own poetry, and I wondered if you'd read some for us. So the first one I'll read is called Sanctuary. It's a shortish poem that I have. Sanctuary. Another record day for the history books. Mercury announces the news all aglow. 
watermelon juice mingles with the sweat of fortunate ones savoring the sweet respite after toiling in the meander betwixt car and fiesta. Tables piled with diverse offerings nestle on the still soft earth engorged from the glistening green grasses nightly watering, a contrast to the lack of attention distant vagabonds in tatters demonstrate from the local municipality. Fresh from their expulsion off of the cooled light rail, Passengers must have a destination, the loudspeakers announce, as uniformed personnel ushers the destitute off of the half-empty refuge onto an open landscape with little shade and less shelter. I can see all of that happening, and I can imagine you kind of sitting in a space where public transit is moving pretty quickly about you, mm-hmm. writing that poem. Do I have that right as far as the setting goes for inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. This is a local poem. And as the thermometer has approached uh, the high 90s over the last few days, a uh, slice of watermelon might be a little bit of heaven right now. Oh, yeah. I love watermelon during the summer months. I will hoard them if I could. <laughs> <laughs> How about another poem? This is called A Declaration of Loyalty. What temptation lies in thy path, O soothsayer, extracting such proclamations of faith from thy lips, yet blooming with the vigor of youth despite their years, newly anointed by the adulations of a growing audience, dislodging the comforts of anonymity with flooding opportunities. Whilst thou breaketh with ties familial in the morrow, whilst the dew of warm phrases linger awaiting dehydration? Or are thy actions faithful pilgrims in pursuit of incense flowing from the thurible of thy loyal and ardent pronouncements? So obviously quite a different change in diction between the last poem and this one. And I know that is a conscious choice by Mm -hmm. you. Um, What were you thinking about? Besides maybe a memory of a Shakespeare play that you read when you wrote that. Thank you so much for recognizing that. Yeah, this is, I think so far, my only Shakespearean poem. (laughs) Um, The way I write tends to be a snippet of a line comes to me and then I go with it. And so a snippet of the beginning of the poem came to me. I was like, really? Are we going to do Shakespearean? So that reminds me of a writing instructor that I had many years ago mm-hmm. when I was in college and a burgeoning poet and, and writer. Uh, at least I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. Uh, things, you know, sometimes take in twists and turns. Yeah. But he always said, you know, if you're stuck on something, mm-hmm. give yourself a life raft to swim to. Mm. And he was very fond of saying that. And, and by that he meant... Often if you can come up with an end of something first, that gives you a place to write toward. Mm. And it has worked for me numerous times. But what you also mentioned by just getting a fleet of inspiration and having a line and then letting it sit, right, and mature. There's there's no hard and fast rules that say you have (laughs) to write the poem right now, although immediate inspiration sometimes happens, right? Yeah, I tend to, um, I I use my phone now to write. So, you know, fortunately, I have it always with me. And most of the time, it's enough battery power for me to finish writing the poem. And because I have these long commutes, it really helps. So I'm I'm just on my phone typing away. 
um, with this particular poem, I did have to go online to just look at verb forms, making sure that it's consistent. I'm not sure if I've achieved it all. You know, I've tried. There, and I, through writing this poem, I was able to find out there's actually a Shakespearean English translator, which is awesome. You're also writing and, and reading in a couple of events coming soon to mm-hmm. the Phoenix metro region. Oh, yeah. Um, on May 11th at uh, the Her Museum, there is the second Saturday event from 10 to 4. I'll be tabling there with two of the poet guests that I had on on the show. And we will also be reading in the afternoon. All of us will take turn along with uh, the two authors, I believe they will have as well. So they have uh, authors, publishers, as well as poets there. Imogen Arate is with us here on Word, and she's been talking about poetry and her own podcast, the title of which is... Poets and Muses. Okay, and where can folks check that out? SoundCloud would be the first place. I believe there's RSS feed on it. I don't quite understand how all of those work, (laughs) mostly because this is my first podcast and I just dove into it with no life preserver on man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so sometimes that's the way to go. Imogen, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you joining us on Word. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the time. Coming up after another quick break, we'll talk to Valley poet Anna Flores about her experience of mixed-status families that went into her work, Bocha Theory. You're listening to Word. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. KJZZ thanks Allison for donating her Harley-Davidson to support her favorite shows. You can donate your ride, too, by visiting cars.kjzz.org, and thanks. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. According to the National Center for International Diversity, there are approximately 16 million people in mixed-status families in the U.S., whose members include people with different citizenship or immigration statuses. The National Immigration Law Center gives an example of a mixed-status family as one in which the parents are undocumented, but the children are U.S.-born citizens. I wanted to explore this topic with Valley poet Anna Flores, who was born in Nogales, Arizona. But first, I began by asking her how far back her love of poetry extends. I've been writing poems maybe since I was six Do you remember that poem? Do you still have it? I have it. Yes, I have all of my journals. Um, I think it was a poem about a tree and it was just something generic like the birds on the tree are singing and then a picture of a tree. But I was definitely trying to write a poem. And, and, you know, uh, my mother and my aunt speak in poems like all of the little phrases they have are basically poems. I haven't really called myself a poet until I went to ASU. I was studying journalism my first year, but I took a poetry course because I was really interested in poetry. I was writing poetry in high school. Um, Of course, nobody um, recommended that I try and study poetry as a means of living. So it was always sort of like this other thing I did that maybe some people found out if I happened to tell them. But I had the pleasure of working under Rosemary Dombrowski. Um, She taught a class there, and she was really the first person that 
was like, yeah, you could be a poet. You could totally be a poet. And that's sort of how I started saying, okay, well, then I'm a poet, I guess. Sometimes that's just what you need is just to say it out loud. Yeah, really. It does wonders. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for having such a, a long period of your history up to sort of like formally studying it, Mm -hmm. if you will, is, is amazing. Uh, A lot of people do pick up poetry. I found when they're young, Mm -hmm. um, teachers teach it. And then for whatever reason, it just kind of goes away. Yeah. What did you find were sort of maybe some immediate challenges when you were taxed to actually start studying at a deeper level and how did that affect your own writing? I've learned a lot of lessons through poetry, a lot of life lessons through poetry, but when I realized that you could edit a poem <laughs> and make it better, I think that changed a lot of things for me. Um, and and I was writing poems about life, about nature, about me, about love, about relationships. But Rosemary Dombrowski is actually the pers- first person who told me, you know, there's something in your poems that you're sort of skirting around. And it was um, the concept of the border or being related to the border or having separated family. All of those things were in the poems, even from when I was a little girl. But I didn't really, I guess, make that the focal point. It was like a line here or there. And she told me, no, you need to write about this. And I felt very challenged because at first because I didn't like being told what I was writing about. And then second, because it was definitely hard and it wasn't sexy, I guess. Right. Like, you know, I was writing love poems. I was writing about identity. I was writing about me. It was fun. And it was it wasn't as uh, it wasn't that challenging to me. And then when I realized that, you know, there was this deeper thing that I was trying to write about that wasn't as romantic as people wasn't the sort of things that I felt people wanted to be reading, at least my peers that was challenging. It's a good point that you mentioned about revisions because, you know, when I was teaching poetry and literature in college and university, I was always amazed that people were amazed when I would show them other authors' revisions. Mm-hmm. And it was like they just approached the act of writing as you had to be a virtuoso. You had right. to be a genius. Yeah. I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to be able to do this. I just, that's why I'm not an English major mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. And I was, well, stop, stop, stop. Yeah. You know, let's take a look at some folks who have been your predecessors. And, you know, look at the multiple changes just in this sentence right here. And it gave them a lot of comfort to see that they could approach things. But what you also touched on there is how hard it is to really investigate deeper feelings Mm -hmm. and to confront things that are a part of you that maybe you're not comfortable getting out. Yeah. What does that do to a person when they go through that? It's both exciting and it is a sort of um, wound opening, I guess, but it can be therapeutic. I don't think that I look to be hurt or look to find those traumas and prod at them in order to write a poem. I don't think that's a correct way to go about writing a poem. But if there is something there already, then investigating that, you know, the outcome of that can be magical. And of course, that involves editing. The editing process sometimes is what gets you to that place, really like taking apart your lines. I I had the pleasure of, of also getting some 
um, one on one time looking at poems with Alberto Rios after I like emailed him so many times <laughs> and I was like, Hey, and so finally, and one of the things he, he, he said that he teaches in his courses are, you know, you look at a line and then you talk about that line right under it, which is right. What you're trying to say. And sometimes that is the actual poem instead of that line that you began with. That's so grandiose and purple and flowery. Sometimes that's not the poem. So editing is magical, but it just doesn't seem that way. And Mr. Rios, I assume you're talking about our state's poet laureate. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Wow. It must have been an amazing treat uh, to be mentored. By oh, yeah. I like learned that. so much in just maybe like three sessions, things that I'll never, ever forget. And of course, Rosemary is a poet laureate who's been on this program as well. And as we continue National Poetry Month, uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Anna Flores, who is uh, on her way to study poetry. I don't know. Maybe we'll call it Poetry Squared. You're going to try to yeah. get a master's degree. Yeah, try to get a poetry. master's degree. That's right. So this really is going to become a profession for you, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess my subconscious was more stubborn about it than I was. But I'm really, really excited to have the time to really just get crazy about poetry. I first learned about you very recently when my colleague Christina Estes was covering a story for KJ's Easy News and writing this amazing series of features about books and literature. She sent me a copy of a poem that she read at a recent reading. It was just stunning. Uh, 90 seconds, I think, was what it was um, in, t- in terms of length. And why don't you tell folks what the name of that poem is? Yeah, so the name is Mexicans Are Such Hard Workers. Now, when you just look at that title, mm-hmm. you might think to yourself a number of things, but just looking at that title, it has, when I first saw it, some bit of innocence to it. Yeah, definitely. But, but when I heard you read it, I found myself almost weeping by the end of it. Yeah. And so I want to play that poem from that reading for folks. Yeah. Mexicans are such hard workers. I overhear my porcelain teachers clink their teeth together, a toast in celebration of their tongues, proud to be so kind. My father borrows a name so he can feed us. He stops introducing himself to people. He never answers the phone. I dream about what he was before he was illegal and wake up with fingers broken from weaving God's hair, two braids, double trinity. Amma and I leave our Bibles at the end of the bench near the aisle every Sunday. I stare at everyone when their heads are bowed, but prayers only work if you close your eyes. I was born with Nana's lips, but this voice is mine. It's not green, white, and red, not red, white, and blue. It's rain in a silver bucket. At home, the men eat with their eyes closed. The world would end if we saw them cry. Mexicans are such hard workers. Mexicans are such hard workers. Mexicans are workers. Mexicans work, work, Mexican work. Mexicans are such hard workers. They say it like it's an honor to watch my father die. Tough, tough poem to hear. And I'm wondering how the crowd reacted to that poem when you read it. Well, that poem is really, really special because it does something that I am now investigating about poems, which is the poem is able to not just move people, 
but it it unskews their perception about labor and migrant bodies and the objectification of that. So when I read the title, depending on the crowd, I will say, Mexicans are such hard workers. And you could hear, I can hear people say, yes, woo, clap, because it is an empowering so-called empowering thing that we've been given. So if I'm reading in front of people in the immigrant community, if I'm reading in front of other brown folks or other um, children of immigrants, even they will have that reaction. If I'm reading in front of a predominantly white crowd or predominantly um, upper class crowd, which has happened depending on the event, they will also clap and they will also try to express their gratefulness, express that romanticization of, of labor. By the end of the poem, people are changed. People, people realize what toxic uh, weight that carries. And it's, and it's a hard thing to do. It was a hard poem for my father to hear. A lot of people will come up to me after the reading and ask me when my father died because they may, you know, that is what they think happened. And I say, well, you know, my father is alive, <laughs> but we have gone through a lot of things. When I, when I wrote that poem, my, my dad had been working an odd job on a roof and he broke his leg. And there are many issues that arise when somebody in that um, state gets hurt. So it's not just about when is he going to work again. It's about insurance coverage. It's about a lot of really technical, difficult, politicized things. But at the end of the day, it is driven by that thought, that mentality, that your work is what defines your value. And when you are somebody that has been marginalized from quote-unquote dignified work then all you're left with is your body and when your body is gone then you are nothing also you remind people that the speaker in a poem is not necessarily you or has not necessarily experienced 100 percent of what is going on in a poem in mm -hmm. other words there's what we call a persona and, and you might bring in some fictional elements but that helps tell a deeper story and in some ways you're using the craft of inventiveness to do that through a poem but it doesn't mean that it can't resonate the interesting thing is how it does resonate for different people mm -hmm. of different backgrounds and i think you're right with that notion of work ethic that could really apply to to a lot of people yeah right this this proudness that comes from doing work how about another poem i know you brought some in with yeah, you yeah yeah I have another poem about my father. It's called My Father the Welder that I think is a good sort of follow-up to Mexicans are such hard workers. Sure. My father, the welder. His fingerprints on the welding tools he left behind. Traces of the man with hair, black like nothing. The silver of his name is slicked onto nails sprawled over the ground. No one will ever use them. His last true smile hangs on Magdalena Street, a branch of iron coiled into a fence he built for his neighbor. 
He wore a dignity, made from the same metal he melded, raised his chin to the sun every dawn, orale. The man left, stupid with hope. But before crossing, etched my birth date onto the last stairs he ever built on a hill in Nogales. 1-18-1996 meant, I will return. But the new world, beyond the wall, broke his legs. Another pretty deep poem. Yeah. And as you're reading, I'm conscious of you being conscious with your words and the way that you say them. Is that on purpose or are you reimagining writing this and being careful about the choice of your words? In every reading I do, I mention my family. So I, I say I want to honor them and open this space up so that they can also live in the words. But it is a sort of carefulness because every word is really rather heavy. And so I think in order for my health and for the poem itself, it does take a lot of care to go through the poem and make sure that I'm giving myself the time I need and I'm giving the poem the times it needs because it is a lot of trauma. It's a lot of death. I have a lot of peers who would argue that or who would maybe bring up the point about trauma porn is what it's called. And so reading pieces like this and having people affected by them, it needs to be more than that. It can't just be a poem that lives in that moment and then is as fleeting as the emotions that are caused. I sort of need it to be able to exist for a deeper reason than that. And that's for me and for my family. When I published this book, initially I was under the impression that I would be able to tie up all of these memories and all of these hardships and all of these hopes into this neat little box and be able to move on from it. But the lesson that I learned the most by publishing this book and by putting it out into the community is that this is something that we will never be able to get over. You know, this is something that I will read and feel for the rest of my life and the rest of my parents' life and now the rest of my nieces' lives because they are also what I would consider next-generation pochas. They, they actually cross every day to go to school. So this book will be my way of helping them navigate this issue, which is going to exist for a long time. And I was really quite ignorant to think that, that I would somehow move on from this category of writing about the border. And people write about places for the rest of their lives. People write about New York till they die. So I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco, Tales of the City, you mm-hmm. name it. It yeah. goes on and on and on. Uh, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um we're in a political place right now where it does seem that there's going to be no sunset mm-hmm. on the issue of the border. Oh, yeah. And particularly here in a border state like mm-hmm. Arizona, it's constantly in the news. Yeah. Um, you know, pick a topic. You can connect it to the border, whether it's trade, um, whether it's people just trying to cross it to make a living. I don't see it going away anytime soon, but I don't have to face because I come from a different heritage, I don't have to face mm-hmm. the kinds of things that you do. Yeah, and I don't have to face the kind of things that 
undocumented people do. Right. So it's it's so multidimensional. Mm-hmm. It really is an eternity of fodder, even if it's terrible. What's the point of continuing in this vein of description? Mm-hmm. Well, it's changed for me. When I was first writing, I really wanted to become a great writer. I knew very early on that it it wasn't about being the best, but it was a sort of like an idea about comp- competitiveness and about proving something about the language. But now I've become really, really humble by the voice in the poems in a way that is almost not entirely just myself in there. The book has humbled me. It be, it has become a catalyst for conversation in my own family. And instead of naming the book something that will introduce the revolution, it has more so just grounded me in the concepts of freedom, but in my family, which is where all movements should start. And so... I've sort of broken a lot of chains, a lot of barriers that existed in my own family. The men in my family never used to talk about these issues. Now we talk about these things. If I'm writing a poem, they're a part of it. My mom is writing a poem with me now. It's just all of the things that we felt were too painful to talk about, we're talking about because the book, it's it's out there and I had to get their permission. And once they had to say yes or no, to having their stories be published, then they realized that they too, you know, had a say in the way that our families are being spoken about in the media and our families are represented by the president of the United States, that all of these things that just felt too unreachable, you know, they're talking about. My nieces are talking about it. My brothers talk about it. We have conversations and in that way we can heal there are a lot of issues that will never be solved. My father will probably never see my brothers again until something terrible happens. And that's a really heavy, everyday monstrosity. But the fact that we can discuss it, that we can try and reach back into our lineage and find some ground there and really take away that shame or that self-blame, that guilt has done wonders and I think if it if it is able to do that for my family then the only hope is that maybe there are other families that that the book could sort of help commence those conversations it's it's really about healing and processing I like too how you kind of went through this personal evolution where you felt like you had to speak mm-hmm. for more than just your family mm-hmm. and this search and putting yourself out there and feeling like you were speaking for other people Mm -hmm. actually brought you full circle back around to what is the most important thing it sounds like yeah and i've learned that you know there is no such thing as a voiceless Mm -hmm. i also went into this thinking i was speaking for someone but my ancestors my family now are speaking through me i'm not better than them which is what so much of my schooling and education with all good intentions, tried to teach me that I was better, that I was the culmination of this really terrible, sad situation when in fact I'm still there and I am them and whatever I write is their voice too. And there is no voiceless. They're just as loud as I am. I am not better than them. And the book has all taught me that. Even when I I went into it thinking 
that this was my responsibility, right, to like say what couldn't be said. And that's not the truth at all. The book is really all of my family and everything that they've said. And it's taught me so, so, so much about how we can uplift people who are already talking about these things. It must be tough because I come from a family where I was, you know, essentially the first child in the family to go and get a college degree. Mm -hmm. But it was always pressed upon me Mm -hmm. that this was going to happen. You are going to college. You are going. There's no questions about it. Right. Uh, And you're also going to pay for it (laughs) and figure out how to get through it and everything. But I don't think it ever occurred to me that I had to be the one that really represented the family. And I never thought that I would outgrow my family because of their own lack of education, Mm -hmm. for instance. So I find that fascinating. And that must have been a a very difficult tension for you to balance. Yeah. I think it could have gone a completely different way if I had bought into that idea. It's just so wrong to assume that they are finished because of their limitations and I think a lot of the programs that I was put in growing up I was always deemed the good example from a batch of doomed kids so I was always in yeah I was always in the leadership academies and the in the um, workshops on how to be like a successful at at risk youth is what they had told us. So all of the Teach for America programs in which we were singled out was an attempt to try and convince us that we were destined for greatness, barely <laughs> like making it out of these um, low income neighborhoods. Um, and my family was also put into that into that circle. So although these programs and these scholarship um, Uh, organizations had really great intentions. I don't think that they were able to see past that into the background, into the whole of my persona, which included my family. And I'm really grateful that my family was able to support this dream of acting and dance and poetry uh, simply because they felt it was my right to, you know? And so through that relationship, I was able to see how wrong these conceptions and these skewed perceptions of my family were. And I think initially the book was sort of in to spite all of that. And it's turned into something a lot more wholesome. Do you think that we have a problem in this country with shaming poor people oh, yeah. of, of all backgrounds, oh, of yeah. all walks of life? And why do we have that problem? It's, it's so... It's such a problem. It seeps into everything. It seeps into the way we talk about work ethic. We talk about um, who is allowed to dream, who is allowed to have, who is allowed to be an artist even. Um, I don't know what it is. It's definitely not like that in other places I've been. I was in Argentina for a couple months and even being in Mexico and just trying to I mean I would get to my place I was in a fellowship program I would get there and I would start just going 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 and they were like whoa slow down and I'm like always in the back of my head I'm like well if I don't do 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 then I'm going to be poor it's a real phobia 
I mean, when me and my family first moved to this country, I mean, I was born here, but shortly after they moved here, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment. It was nine of us. I've always known, me and my nephews and who lived with us have always known that our biggest fear is poverty. Our biggest fear is not being worth that sacrifice. So statistically, I'm never going to be a millionaire. You know what I mean? Like that just doesn't happen because of the generational poverty. But the shame, the real, the shame, the guilt of not living up to these expectations or not fulfilling the American dream holds back so many of my peers that I've seen fall into drug abuse or mental health issues or selling drugs or, you know, I've seen it happen and I know who these people are. I've seen them grow up, but I know that it's because we're giving that ultimatum. You have to not be poor at all costs because being poor is the worst thing you can be. It's so detrimental to so anything, anything that you want to do or be is cut down because of that fear. Anna Flores is a poet among many things and obviously an amazing thinker. She's been kind enough to join us on the program. I wondered if you would take us out with maybe one more of your poems. definitely. This poem is called, and it's a long title. I know we own a moment together, somewhere not too far away. But I have no memory of ever visiting there and no idea when I am likely to return. I see your face and I want to kiss it. It would mean we survived so well that we still love. Can you feel the world before the ships arrived? I long for that slow sky, heavy with time. Before that sweater you love to wear, my favorite embrace was draped in a sea made of night with gilded stars. The mirrors were in the waters, and we ate the fish like our own reflection. Ethical consumption, they call it now. Back then, it was just good. I want my freedom, but only if it's yours as well, and his, and hers, and theirs. I know you remember me from where there were no words for chains or jail. I think I don't want to look at it clearly. I think my right eyeball would fall out of my face. And anyway, my ears don't work in that place. I mean, I have theories about chimes and cymbals and bells, but the days crinkle down into silence. In death, the sense of hearing is last to go. And to survive, you and I have to be born every day. Your eyes are so old, same age as mine. I look at you and remember. Sometimes I dream about my nose and your curls, both things we were taught to hate. Just tell me what you see back there. In the corner of my glare, it isn't just you, though. It's easy to think so, but it isn't, isn't it? It's death and hunger and love is outside of me, always just out of reach, where I keep you or where you stay. 
I feel if you sit next to me, it might be too much. I feel we might never move again. I feel I may let the condos full of the rich and unvaccinated grow over our bodies, and I'd let them. So I can't, but you, you put a tambourine in my hand. You put a tambourine in my hand. You, tambourine, hand, cymbals, bells, chimes, yellow, honey, yellow, notepads in my pocket with bullet points about time travel. That poem has such an amazing rhythm to it because I feel it starting out slow and getting more passionate, more intense, building in a speed mm-hmm. into it, and then that reflective kind of slowing back down again in respite. Um, yeah, it's it's really the first time I've like read it out loud, but it's so different than what I'm used to writing. Mm-hmm. But I've been having sort of this fantastical settings about this place where none of these things would exist and and what would love be there and where would my parents work there and where would I work there and how would I be happy there? And so I think writing is one of the only places where we can imagine futures and construct them. And I feel like if we write about them enough, then they might become actual places. And so where can people get your work if they're interested in checking it out? um, Aside from seeing you read here and there throughout the Yeah, I think, I mean, well, you can follow me on Facebook under Anna Flores, A-N-N-A-F-L-O-R-E-S. And usually if there's an event going on, I'm on there or my Instagram, uh, which is pochaterca, P-O-C-H-A-T-R-C-A. That means stubborn Pocha. And I usually post either my poems that I'm working on on there or the next event that I'll be at. I also have a theater collective called New Carpa Collective, and we do a bunch of crazy stuff around the valley. So, Well, I wouldn't say you're stubborn at all. I would just just say you have a lot of perseverance. Thank you. And I thank you so much for coming on the program and being with us here. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Anna Flores. Her collection of poems entitled Bocha Theory is widely available. And that's a wrap for this final episode celebrating National Poetry Month. We'll be back soon with another episode that celebrates the literary arts in Arizona and the region. So keep an ear out. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word. Word, I'm going to say the word. Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.